Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Gigli. Okay, I am Sebastian and I am here with Jennifer. Hello. And welcoming back to the podcast, our good friend Josh Miller. Hello. Yay. Yay. Yes, Josh is the co-host of the Best Movies Never Made podcast, a great podcast. And by the way, I meant to tell you, I listened to an episode you guys put out not too long ago where it was, you were discussing the Timothy Dalton Bond movies. That was really good. I really enjoyed it. I'd heard that guest you had on too. I'd heard him on other Bond-related podcasts. Yeah, his book, The Lost James Bond, is pretty cool. And, you know, he, he was cautious about not giving away too much, so we tried not to. But there's a lot of good stuff in that book for James Bond super fans out there. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite eras of James Bond, because I do love Timothy Dalton, and I also love the what-ifs that could have happened around that time. Josh is also uh, one of the screenwriters of the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise at this point. Franchise. Does it count as a franchise when it's just two movies? I think it does. I mean, I'll, I'll accept it. It does. And he is the host, because I am no longer a host, of Friday Night Frights, L.A.'s premier horror screening series. Yay! Woo! And we've also been doing uh, live shows on Twitch. Nice. The first Friday of every month on the Museum of Home Video, if people want to just search that. Lots of good stuff on the Museum of Home Video in general, mostly showing weird, weird clips of uh, crazy nonsense from YouTube and so forth. Well, sadly, we're not here to talk about any of those things today. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are here to talk about Gigli. Now, I just have to say up front... I'm sorry. I'm sorry to both of you <laughs> that we have to talk about Gigli. I entered into this with good faith. The whole point of this podcast is to explore and reevaluate movies that were big financial disasters. And in the 2000s, you don't get any sort of bigger, at least in terms of high profile, than this movie. Because this movie cost a mind-boggling $75 million. I have a lot to say about that number. We we are going to talk about that almost (laughs) entirely. But also, and it made a mind-bogglingly low $6 million. And that's worldwide. The whole world. That's all it made. And it's utterly baffling. But anyway... I was hoping to find something good here because I was like, (laughs) you know, I don't remember seeing Gigli and I was hoping I'm sure I'll be able to find something decent here. 
but I don't really know if I was able to do so. Maybe you guys will have some nice things to say. But the reason why we're covering this, more importantly, is to celebrate the reunion of Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, who would have thought that would happen? Pretty much no one. I mean, I guess now that it's happened, maybe it actually isn't that surprising, but... It does feel weirdly inevitable now, doesn't it? In in a weird way, even though they didn't date in real life, they just dated on a TV show. But, you know, like when Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis from that 70s show got married, I guess because they were a couple on the show, it was kind of like, yeah. (laughs) Somehow that felt like that's the way the universe was supposed to go. I remember their uh, high-profile romance at the time. You know, I thought, yeah, they make a kind of cute couple. So like the rest of the world, I was heartbroken when they broke up. (laughs) And so now they've, you know, come back to each other after all these years, and I felt, well since they'll probably break up in a few months, <laughs> we should probably cover Gili. What horrible movie are they going to make together during this window, though? That's what oh. I want to know. I hope they do, and I hope <laughs> Ben Affleck directs it, because yes. then it'll be even more catastrophic. Actually, I don't wish catastrophic luck on Ben Affleck. I like Ben Affleck. Me too. I do too, and I actually think if he did direct something with the two of them, it might be okay. Because yeah. his directing has is, is, is been good. It's pretty solid. I haven't seen that yeah. last one he did, but... I haven't either. Which last one? They Live by Night or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that either. This is funny because when ben, Matt and Ben were the big thing, I fully recognized that, like, just mano a mano, Matt Damon was the slightly more talented, like, actor. But I felt like everyone was always dunking on... Affleck is like the dud of the duo, but I was like, I don't know. I, I like Affleck more. Yeah. Damon, I've grown to like more over time, but maybe because yeah. he played so many villains and like in school ties and he was always like the unlikable prick where Ben Affleck was in movies I liked more. I guess also playing pricks, but. But I think Matt, Matt Damon, Josh, I think you're right. Matt Damon was always like cast for a long time as always being the worst, like especially school ties. Oh, yeah. The worst. I guess maybe that's the thing is if you were of the age where school ties was your introduction to Matt Damon. Ben Affleck at least wasn't really playing rich assholes. He was just like the dickhead and dazed and confused and yeah. mall rats yeah. and stuff. But it's interesting because I feel like this time specifically, 2003, was like the first nadir of Ben Affleck. Like he's had some obvious highs and lows in his career. And this year, mostly because of Gili and Daredevil to some degree mm-hmm. and yeah. Paycheck, a movie no one remembers, a John Woo, Philip K. Dick sci-fi thriller that he also starred in that year, all of which were in some form or another a disappointment. I feel like this was sort of his low point. Yeah, I do. Because I did see this movie when it was new, mainly because even before coming out, it was achieving that kind of like Ishtar level where like all critics just loved making fun of it. I mean, I'll talk about more when we get into the movie. Yeah, because I liked Ben Affleck in the 90s and then Good Will Hunting happened and I kind of liked that movie, but that was also a classic case where they were just getting like way too much attention and praise. And I did like really restrain myself from just automatically hating them. But then I felt like Affleck 
it really it's interesting how much he's bounced back now is like because he's been directing and writing but it was kind of like the world just didn't know what to do with him and he didn't know what to do with himself yep. making things like phantoms and obviously armageddon was like a big hit pearl harbor was kind of a big hit but i just remember his presence in those movies was always just like what are you doing ben affleck yeah. like matt damon was going off and making like the talented mr ripley and kind of like yeah. interesting like I won an Oscar, you know, kind of artistic yeah. dramas and Ben Affleck, which is like, I'm going to become a big, dumb movie star and date J-Lo. <laughs> and yeah, in 2003 was really where it felt like that all came crashing to a head. Not a good year. No. no. Jen, you didn't ever see this, right? No. And as a matter of fact, when we were watching it last night, I had thought I had seen it at least once. Like I did not in the theater, but like I, that I had caught it on TV or, you know, rented it or something. And as we were watching it last night, I, I said, to, I said to Sebastian, I was like, I have never seen this. Like no, none of this is familiar. This is like a, this is definitely a first time viewing. I, I thought I had, but no, this was my first time seeing it was last night. I had seen it before because I was working at Cinephile Video when it came out and the Cinephile Video gang loved to rally around disastrous movies. And so I remember it came out on uh, DVD and we all went to somebody's house and watched it. But I was drinking probably heavily through that screening and remembered mm. very little other than the fact that I was really bored by it overall. Yeah, it's so and that's what I was about to say moments ago was that I, I was excited to see it because it was so hated. Uh, but unlike, you know, when you, I feel like you hear about Showgirls, which is a movie that cannot be overhyped to you. And then yeah. when you watch it, no matter what anyone said about it, you're like, oh, my God, like what? What were how did this get made with so much money behind it? Uh, and it's kind of like amazing. Uh, this is yeah, it's just it's dull. It's a very boring movie. It's like the antithesis of Showgirls because Absolutely. you're watching it and you're like, how did this get made and how did it cost so much money? I I, I mean, it can't be the cast. The one when you're saying, can you think of something nice to say about the movie? The nicest thing I can say about the movie is that uh, with the exception of Justin Bartha, who I mainly just don't have an opinion on, I really like every single principle. Like I like Jennifer Lopez. I like Ben Affleck. Obviously, like Christopher Walken, Pacino. Uh, Martin Brest has a really weird filmography with hardly he any does. movies on when you look at it. But I'd say Beverly Hills Cop 1 and Midnight Run are two of the yep. best action comedies like ever, but certainly yeah. the best of the 80s. Uh, and then his career just took a really strange turn after he did Scent of the Woman. Scent of a Woman? Yeah, Scent of a Woman. Scent of, of a, a woman. woman. Yeah. It's like he went to Oscar town and then couldn't get out of his own way. Like, go back to making an action comedy like the 80s. Like, you did that well, Martin. Like, I just, I don't know what, he usually didn't write his movies, at least not once his career got big. But I really don't know what the idea was here. And it's the antithesis of showgirls in the sense that I've seen showgirls so many times. You know why? Because it's fun. This movie has is devoid of all fun. There's no fun to be had here. I will never watch this again. Spoiler. Till another podcast. I would have said the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
God, true. I sorry. I, I will never <laughs> willingly willingly choose. I wouldn't. I, well, it's just like there's no there was nothing that I would want to revisit. I'll say I hate the idea of the movie too. Like it's yes. Because I was thinking about this that the Sopranos started in 1999. This came out in 2003. It very much feels like something written by someone who's been watching The Sopranos. Yeah. It's just like, oh, I love this. This seems like so much fun. No, Josh, it feels like it was written by Christopher on The Sopranos. <laughs> it's true. This is what this is what he sold to the development girl in that <laughs> yeah, one yeah. story arc on the show. Yes. No, I was telling several last night. I, was, I, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, it's totally Christopher. Or I was saying uh, it reminds me of something that like one of um, the, the lead a- actor, the girl, the blonde on Barry would be like auditioning for or something. Yeah. Like, it feels like, su- like <laughs> such a like it, I, I can't believe that this caliber of a director and the cast and it, it just like it was mind boggling that like this this happened. Like, I, I can't even like, I, and, and Seth knows like it's rare. Like I can usually find something that I like about a film. Like there's maybe like, I could count on one hand, like films that I just, I, I can't, I just did not like at all. Like I couldn't find anything that I liked. And I was like, I've never struggled so much as I have with watching this. Jennifer is very forgiving of movies. If they can provide almost anything of value, she will be very forgiving of them. And that was not the case here. (laughs) It's like a stage play. Yes. Yes. Like, they do leave the apartment a couple times, but even when they do, they kind of immediately just go to another location with these really long interior scenes of characters giving long speeches and if it wasn't so bad i would i was gonna say someone should turn it into a play (laughs) well why don't we get into it thankfully there's really not that many plot points to hit because there isn't (laughs) really much of a plot per se and what there is is so strangely muted and not dramatically executed that you couldn't be faulted for missing it all together but we're introduced to our main character, Gili. Sounds like really is what he says when he's t- telling people how to pronounce his name. Played by Ben Affleck. And we have this scene where he's talking to the camera, but then we get a reverse shot and we realize that he's got this guy in a dryer in a laundromat and he's, you know, some sort of mob enforcer or something. He's going to put this guy through the dryer if he doesn't pay up or whatever. I was just going to just interrupt, which I feel really, I guess, depending on one's taste in movies, for me, that really started things off on the wrong foot twice. Because <laughs> I didn't remember the movie very well at all, like you, because it's for, I mean, it was 20 years ago and it was forgettable. And I'm sure my friends and I were just talking over it for the most part. We rented it. I didn't see it in the theater, but so it begins with this dumb snarky narration with Ben Affleck doing a very unconvincing, like New York wise guy sort of accent. And I'm like, I already hate this. I hate movies that begin like this. And then they do the reveal that he's talking to a guy and I'm like, I almost hate this more. This is such (laughs) that like kind of post Tarantino yes. like just sort of cutesy movie weirdness which works if you're Tarantino and you can really pull it off but I hated all these movies kind of imitating that like oh wouldn't it be funny if hitmen were like wacky and talked about stupid shit and were like jokey all the time 
a terrible way to begin a movie. And not only that, but this is like way too late for that kind of crap. The heyday for that kind of shit was like 96. And we're now like six years after that, like the bad Tarantino ripoff thing is so passe at this point. So Mm -hmm. even if you can stomach that sort of thing, you're probably sick of it by this point in history. And why is Ben Affleck a New York mobster dude because he lives in California and apparently has lived there his whole life. He's not even a transplanter or something. At first I'm thinking, oh, is he supposed to be like a New York guy who got transplanted to L.A. and, oh, he's going to talk about how much he hates L.A. or whatever? No, he's lived there his whole life and he talks like that. Hey, yo, even worse is his his buddy, Louie. Who has Louis. genuine accents, uh, but like, like, how's that guy a Californian? Oh, Louie. I don't understand this whole like scene of these people that live in LA who have seemingly been here for a while that are just like so New York. And also like I told Seb, I'm like, I don't understand why like this New York accent is so bad when Ben Affleck is from Boston. Like just lean into that. Like you can do that. I've heard him do that. It sounded so just so cheesy and forced and just, oh yeah, Josh, I'm right there with you. It started off and I was like, nope, already. (laughs) Well, I have to put that on Martin Brest because he wrote this and he directed this. So this is obviously a choice that he wanted to go with, but it's baffling because he didn't bother to shoot the movie in New York. So it doesn't make sense. And it's never explained why we've got these two New York mobster guys. And like they're having this conversation about mob stuff, like outside this like L.A. cafe right in front of people who are like, you know, having their like avocado toast or whatever. It is utterly baffling. And yeah, the actor who plays Louis, Lenny Venito, I know he's supposed to be an irritating person and a jerk, but unfortunately the actor did too good of a job being irritating and jerkish because I never warmed up to him. And you know, <laughs> he, he appears throughout the movie basically yelling at Gigli over the phone. And I remember this was a guy who I feel like around this time period, he was in a zillion things playing yeah. TVN movie, playing the exact same character because he looks funny. And that's, I think, how he actually sounds so it's you know i'm sure he cinches all his auditions but i can never remember his name and i looked it up and it's because it sounds exactly like danny devito his name is lenny Venito. right (laughs) (laughs) again i think that is what that guy kind of sounds like but he he very much places this movie for me as like analyze this like it's Mm -hmm. like that style of like real goofy mob comedy even though this movie is kind of trying to simultaneously be fairly serious at times. I just feel like you don't cast a guy like Lenny Venito in that movie unless you want it to be a goofy comedy. Because he's like, oh, yo, blah, blah, blah. hey, yo. <laughs> I didn't even really clue into the fact that this is supposed to be a comedy or a romantic <laughs> comedy. It so misses the mark of that genre. And I'll fully admit I am not a romantic comedy guy. It's not my genre. But I honestly 
in for the first 30 minutes was just trying to peg the genre and I was like are we doing a mob movie are we doing a comedy I couldn't even just grasp the genre I've seen way more rom-coms than you have and I didn't know that this was supposed to be a romantic comedy I mean I do think from the little I've read about the movie that and I don't think this was ever going to be a good movie but it maybe would have been 15% better, except for the fact that clearly the studio also didn't know what to do with this movie, but they were like, well, Ben Affleck and JLo are in it and they're dating. Yeah. This should be a rom-com. Uh, Cause I know the ending was completely different from what they shot and they reshot it because audiences at this point were like, Oh, it's Benifer. And like, they needed to kind of lean into that, but it's weird. This and chasing Amy, on Ben Affleck's totally filmography of just kind of like weird, clueless movies about lesbians written by straight white guys. And, yeah, that's right? what I was thinking. All those scenes to, that they have together where they're going back and forth about, you know, male sexuality versus female sexuality slash lesbianism. I'm like, didn't Ben do a movie like this yes. already? And it's probably had aged poorly by this point. And <laughs> yeah. You know, he already did a movie where a straight guy convinces a lesbian to go straight for him. It's just another aspect of this movie that is sort of repulsive and only gets worse. We haven't even gotten to Brian yet. <laughs> well, why don't we get to Brian? So the thing that Ben Affleck's Gili has been tasked with as a mob enforcer is he's got to kidnap a mentally challenged young man i'd say he's probably what in his early 20s maybe mm -hmm. and he is the son of a federal prosecutor which i don't think we know until later but that's sort of no. what the plot is so Gili has to go to a you know some sort of facility where he meets brian who is played by justin bartha most famously, I'd say, from the Hangover films, or at least the first yeah. one. Yeah, he is the missing guy from the Hangover. At least one good thing about having you on this podcast, Josh, is it ties into our Dreamcatcher episode, <laughs> because we had a character in that movie that was a mentally challenged person who was played by somebody who was not mentally challenged, and that's what we have here with Justin Bartha. In movies, you know, and I guess it's one of these things of like, what, what is the right answer? Because, you know, on the one hand, it's nice to give people with disabilities roles. But for some reason, I always find it almost extra egregious in a way where because in this he goes into the hospital. And from what I could tell, literally every other patient is an actual person with disabilities. And yep. then we suddenly get to handsome Justin Bartha doing his like dumbest rain man, basically. And I don't know that it, I don't, maybe it would have been better if they'd all just been extras, you, you know, uh, people without disabilities playing. There's something about, it was just the juxtaposition of like seeing the authenticity and then going into the kind of like Hollywood cartoon version everything about his character though i just did like the fact that he's like so horny and not to yeah. say that people with disabilities can't be horny or something but it was you know these are creative choices martin brest was making that he didn't need to make he chose for his whole thing to be that he loves singing rap songs 
and wanting to go to the Bay Watch, as he keeps saying over and over again, which is revealed because he just thinks the girls are hot and wants to hit on a hot girl. I mean, there was nothing overtly super duper offensive beyond just kind of I would so I'll give the movie that I don't feel like there was like a single moment where I was like oh my god I hope everyone who worked on this movie must be praying that millennials <laughs> don't discover this clip on YouTube or something it wasn't anything like that it was just the general idea of like why is the movie about this you know yeah. like I maybe some people think Rain Man hasn't aged well I actually haven't seen it in a real long time, but that was at least like trying to take it seriously. Like that's a drama with some comedy in it. Although I guess, as we noted in this, what is this movie even really going for? But I feel like Brian is definitely supposed to be funny. He's all his stuff is kind of played as either like schmaltzy touching moments or like wacky comic relief. And Ben Affleck's character is almost like inappropriately realistic in his like relationship to him. And by that, I just mean that I'm like, I buy that if Larry Gigli was a real guy, meaning he's an actual criminal who does bad things, he would be uh, really not understanding with Brian and yell at him to the point where it's almost like he doesn't understand what being handicapped is because he's stupid. But for our hero in a movie, I was just like, are they expecting us to slowly start to like Larry Gigli because starting it off on a really bad foot by him having him just be so awful to Brian. I felt that uh, Justin Bartha's performance, I mean, of course, it's unfortunate considering where we are now. And I think you nailed it when you said it's sort of a B-level Rain Man. But honestly, I kind of found him to be the most likable (laughs) character in the movie. Yeah. As hard as it was to sort of watch a not handicapped actor do this sort of thing in this day and age, at least when he was on screen, I felt some measure of warmth and sympathy towards a character. And, you know, he's not played as being like pathetic or anything. He's played as kind of comedy. So I found him to be the most tolerable (laughs) performance in the movie in a lot of ways. I will say... Maybe the only thing in the movie where I reacted, I felt like the movie wanted me to with comedy is for some reason I did find it funny when he's like asking Ben Affleck to read to him. But Ben Affleck literally doesn't own any books, which I'm like, that's a funny bro-y character trait. Mm-hmm. So he picks up a bottle of Tabasco and is just like reading the <laughs> stuff on the side very begrudgingly. I was like, eh, this is funny. I'll accept this. Maybe I was just desperate to laugh at anything, though. And Justin Bartha's character at that point is like, oh, thank you. That's a good story or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jen, did you have any thoughts on Justin Bartha as Brian? Yes, I do. Um, (laughs) I I actually... How can you not? I know. Well, I mean, first of all, and I was saying this as I was watching the film, I was like, he's, you know, the least problematic of this entire film. Um, I, I do like Justin Bartha. I only really know him from the hangover films, but I mean, that's, he's a likable guy. And, um, 
yeah, usually this type of thing really makes me super uncomfortable and I bristle when this happens because I, I kind of along with what you're saying, Josh, I don't really know what the best way is to handle this because I think representation is important, but you know, how are you executing it? Because most of the time it comes off so bad and so not how you want it to be and, and so not aging well. But I, I do feel like, yeah, I, I kind of was the most endeared to him um, in this film. And uh, Larry sucked in the beginning. <laughs> I, I, I was so like not, I mean, but, but so I agree with you, Josh, because he's so how you would think that type of guy would be. If that, if that was a real person, yes, I believe he would not have any patience with Brian and he would, you know, just snap out and be mean and I think that's all very um, legit responses. It's just not going to endear you to Larry because it's we're starting off on a really, really, there's a long way to go. Um, and he doesn't, Larry doesn't really do anything throughout the movie that endears you to him, really. Well, especially, I was just saying Rain Man, it works because he's being burdened with his brother is why Tom Cruise is so mad. Larry's kidnapping this guy. Yes. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get that he's not a nice person and doesn't care about his feelings, but just from like it being a movie and this being our protagonist, he has no right to be upset with anything this person's doing. No. No. Given the context of what's going on. He's like, oh, why are you annoying me so much? Hostage, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and poor hostage is just like in the beginning, he's like, I want to go home, you know? And it's like, oh, God, yeah, of course you do. No one wants to be in this apartment with Larry. Yeah, planes, trains, and automobiles wouldn't have worked if Steve Martin had kidnapped John Candy, but then was also <laughs> like, why are you so annoying, John Candy? <laughs> I did like the the reading of the Tabasco and later of the toilet paper as well, because, yeah, of course, he doesn't have a single book except for a phone book. Back when that was a thing. Was a thing. So Geely kidnaps Brian under the auspices of taking him to see the Baywatch, which basically means just finding Baywatch somewhere. But of course, it's a lie. And they end up at Geely's apartment where a huge chunk of this movie takes place. It's like it's like sitcom level, like how sitcoms will have like three, you know, get an ABC set. This was the A set. This was Seinfeld's apartment. Basically. <laughs> and like, look, they're going for authenticity here. I can appreciate that. It looks just like a crappy Hollywood apartment, you know, that we've all lived in. <laughs> and it's accurate to that, to what this guy would live in. But it is so visually uninteresting. And we are in this place for so long. And it, this movie cost a lot of money. Like, how are we stuck in this boring fucking environment for so long? It's mind-boggling to me. I cannot fathom why this choice was made to keep so much of the movie in this one location. You know how, like, when Tarantino did Hateful Eight, he would say in interviews all the, like, claustrophobic movies he drew inspiration from? which clearly meant he was like, how do you make a movie that's all like, you know, the thing? How do you make a movie that's all inside a building dynamic? And again, I love Martin Brest. I do not feel like he thought about that at all while no. constructing this movie. He wasn't like, oh, I should rewatch 12 Angry Men or something. Like, how do you how do you keep up the pacing when it's just people sitting around in a room? 
Tarantino had the good sense to make that location really interesting, you know, visually and stuff. And this apartment, this cruddy apartment is just <laughs> so oppressive after a while. But one little light of sunshine shows up, and that is J-Lo, our right. female lead. She shows up as Ricky. And at first, she sort of presents herself as a hot chick who's looking to use the phone. But then it is sort of quickly revealed that she is another mobster type of person who has been sent by Lewis to watch Gili. Very confusing. This whole setup completely stymied me. Uh, well, I have read, again, some deleted scenes that I don't actually think make any more sense, but that... Uh, at least contextualize things different. But as far as what we're seeing in the movie, there's, there's a lot of just people showing up and barging into his apartment for one yeah. thing. That's that happens. I think three different times in three different contexts with three different characters uh, for yep. a guy whose whole job is being like a tough, wily criminal. He's got very poor security as, as far as his own bouncing abilities on his yeah. own apartment. It's a classic bad character intro where it's like, oh, isn't this like sassy and weird? Like, what's going on here? But then when you find out what is going on, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would Louie do this and not tell him? Like, doesn't that just seem... Like a red, like this, because we end up learning this is a very important thing that Gili and Ricky are doing for their super boss that they and Louie all work for. But it just seems like it's being handled with like no thought by uh, Louie whatsoever. Just what will be the funniest way to introduce JLo into the movie. Right. Like if this was a police story. It would be like, here's your new partner. Mm -hmm. To make it logical, you'd have Louis introduce them somewhere and Gili would be like, no, I'm not going to do this with this chick or whatever. But the, yeah, the way it's done, it's like, I'm not going to tell you that she's going to be your partner on this. She's just going to show up and insinuate herself into your apartment and then reveal that she's here to watch you. That was a good comparison. It would. It would be like in a cop movie. If our cop was out on a case and some other person showed up not identifying themselves as a cop on purpose to like right. fuck with them. And then when they find out what's going on, our hero calls their chief and they're like, yeah, that's your new partner. Deal with it. And it's just like, why would right. you why didn't you do this in your office like in every other cop movie? How is this the best way to execute this plan? Well, while we're on Ricky, how do you guys feel about J-Lo's performance? I will say, I think in terms of how she measures up to Ben Affleck, I think she's doing a better job. I'm finding yeah. her more convincing in this weird character she's being asked to play. And not to get on a, a tangent of someone who's not in this movie, but my writing partner and I were just talking about this today as relates to Jeremy Renner, who, you know, was catapulted after the Hurt Locker and uh, Ben Affleck's first movie. No, wait, he was in Ben Affleck's second movie, The Town, and is really good in movies like that. And, but I feel like he just doesn't work in like big Hollywood movies. It's just like, it's not the type of acting he's good at. Ben Affleck, I would say is a little better suited than Renner, but like in this context, I feel like this is what JLo's good at 
Like you yeah. see her in a big Hollywood movie and you're like, yes, you're this kind. Of, you should be in rom-coms. Uh, you work in all certain things like this where you're just being like sexy and cool and whatever and delivering kind of unrealistic dialogue. Again, not to imply that Ben Affleck's like some kind of verite <laughs> type actor because he's not. But just to your point of her being more convincing. And I think it is because he's doing a dumb accent. Maybe that's the problem. It's just that like Ben Affleck feels very much like he's frankly in a Kevin Smith movie full of like that kind of real acty because Kevin Smith loves casting his friends and, you know, the way his dialogue works. Uh, J-Lo is at least selling her part in a way that Affleck kind of only does in random moments, like reading the Tabasco bottle. I love J-Lo. I was happy to see her. Um, I think she looks great in this. She's just super pretty. And um, yeah, I, I think she totally works. And I'm entertained with her every time she's on screen, even though, I mean, it's a ridiculous role. And, you know, there's some really over-the-top scenes um like i mean i'm sure we're building up i don't want to jump ahead but we're building up to what she does at the taco stand they go to this taco stand to get breakfast burritos or something and there's these kids uh, teenagers that are playing like this horrible music but it, it's like it sounds like a ripoff of rage against the machine or something and it's really loud and larry's getting all bent out of shape and you know it, i think j-lo had already talked to him about how men can't express their feelings like they weren't taught that it's okay to be upset or cry or whatever so the only reaction they have is anger and so that had already come up i think and so we're there at the taco stand and larry's like i'm gonna shut the fuck up turn it off and all this stuff and then j-lo just is like let me handle this and goes over and goes into this whole spiel about how she's studied um about removing an eyeball like some sort of martial arts or something like that and like these guys are all just like oh okay you know and it's 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 goofy and whatever but i just like seeing her do her thing when i wrote it down because she's saying i can't remember what language she's saying she's speaking i think she ends up revealing that uh none of it was true or something yes. but she's saying that the eye gouging move she's describing yeah. is translate as the rip that takes the past. It's some like <laughs> two parted thing to rip your eyeball out. Actually a cool idea. Like I, yeah. I was yeah. into that idea of this move more so than <laughs> the, scene. the scene. I was just thinking, Oh, that would be cool if that was real. But yeah, I mean, her character is presented as having this sort of, Zen, I don't know, Chinese mysticism or Thai mysticism, or I, I, I'm not sure exactly what sort of mysticism she's into. I think it's all Asian mysticism, but she's like reading Sun Tzu or quoting Sun Tzu and then reading, you know, meditation books. So that's kind of like her character thing. I don't like her character, but I liked JLo's performance. Yes, uh, I miss like, I mean, granted, I'm sure she has no regrets of becoming a gigantic super music act. But like whenever I see really anything she's in kind of from especially before this, because around this time she got very much into her rom coms, which I'm sure have her own fans. But like out of sight with George Clooney movies like that, it was like she was a, she was a cool like actress for a while, just like her the kind of persona she had on screen well i feel like she got back to that in recently recently in, yeah um, hustlers hustlers yeah yeah i just missed it for a while mainly because like i don't know whatever again subjective i was just never into her as like a pop star i was just like eh. 
And granted, again, I don't think I, this wouldn't have been the movie for me, but I think a dorkier and funnier rom-com version of this with Benefer would have worked a lot better because like, again, it's not like it was high comedy, but like a scene where at least I was like, well, I feel like this is they're now using Affleck appropriately in this scene. It's more just the scene feels out of nowhere. Tonally is where she's in his bed and he's like trying to act all super sexy and he's like in the bathroom psyching himself oh. up. And then he comes oh. in and is like stretching to show off his biceps. The bull, you want the bull? I'm the bull. Like he's saying he's the bull and like women are the cow. Yeah. She's she's the cow. Like if this had, if that had been a scene in like one of those, you know, Matthew McConaughey mid aughts dumb rom coms. Again, not the I don't think a movie any of us would love, but at least I'd be like, yeah, that that's a solid, silly bit. But just like this movie also tries to take itself so seriously and be like, yeah, trying to be like real Tarantino, like cool and just all the like observations everybody's making about like human nature and blah, blah, blah. But it's really not very insightful. Yeah, and it's all her character is really focused on sort of tearing down his machismo and, you know, implying that he might be gay. That comes up yeah. a lot. And, you know, she is revealed to be a lesbian. So that also plays into it. This interplay between them goes on in a whole bunch of scenes. And yeah, in a normal romantic comedy, it might be charming if played for laughs but the way these scenes are played are like trying to be these real explorations of like machismo and and female sexuality and everything they've got this one really crazy scene where she's doing like yoga and he's talking about how perfectly designed the penis is and then she's like oh no the vagina is is even more well designed i wrote that down the mouth is the twin sister of the vagina yes yes (laughs) yeah and while she's doing this she's like spreading her legs you know i mean she's in yoga gear or whatever but it's like going for hot and sexy but they're still trying to get at something deep and it's super awkward and weird um anything to say before we move on to christopher walken uh well i was just gonna bring up christopher walken so (laughs) let's bring up christopher walken so it's funny because when this scene starts so he's he's the second character after j-lo who just like shows up at the door. He's at least a cop. So you kind of understand why Affleck doesn't just punch him in the face when he like bursts into his apartment. It's more the fact that this happens three different times with three different characters, but he is the second character (laughs) to uh, Kramer his way into our Seinfeld set uh, here. And he's a police detective. And is this the point where we learn that Brian is the brother of a federal district attorney who is prosecuting Ben Affleck and Louie and J-Lo's boss, whose name is Starkman. So when the scene starts, much like in the same way that uh, I was reminiscing of what I really liked seeing J-Lo in these kind of movies more so than her like rom-coms or as then nothing for a long time. I liked around this time when Christopher Walken was in Catch Me If You Can, because as much as I love funny Christopher Walken, I feel like he was kind of 
polluted by being on SNL over the years. Yeah. Got really into the sort of self parody, kind of like how Nicolas Cage just in anything now is just like he needs money so desperately for all his alimony. You just get the sense that he's like, which scene do you want me to be crazy in? You know, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I like it when Watkins is doing, you know, he's a real actor. Like I liked when he was doing real performances. So this is sort of, I guess, a best of both worlds because the whole first two, three fourths of this scene, I'm like, Oh, I like this. He's kind of, he's just paying a normal character. He's actually kind of being like menacing in a way. And then man, he, all of a sudden at the end, he's like, we should go get ice cream at Marie calendars and starts yes. doing what felt like someone doing an impression of Christopher Walken. I don't even, I just feel like at some point he just makes a really loud noise. I'm just like, Oh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I should have written that down what the exact line was, but it was just like, wow, everything I was loving about this scene really flew out the window fast. It honestly feels like he just showed up on set and they just told him to go in front of the camera and start talking like with minimal (laughs) bullet points. And I, I love Christopher Walken too. I'll take him however I can get him. I was glad to see him just because I was so fucking bored of this movie at this point. He at least injects some crazy Christopher Walken in there. And yeah, in the beginning he seems to be actually giving a performance I mean, it's just bizarre for one thing, because this is the only scene he's in the whole movie. So he's in one scene doing this one thing. This detective never shows up ever again. You'd think at least he'd show up at the end or something. And he did in the original version. Okay, well, that was a missed opportunity to not bring Christopher Walken back for one more scene. But it's just so weird and jarring because it's just this one scene he walks in says some important plot shit and then starts rambling about marie calendar (laughs) but you know i guess i'm glad to see him i'm on the same page as you guys i was happy to see him i love christopher walken so that was a breath of fresh air i was like oh good yeah, just imagine if he hadn't shown up. <laughs> I guess that's I know. The... Yeah, it was it was good good to see him. You know, it, it got weird. I was just kind of like watching him with his coffee cup. Like he was doing like some weird things, folding the coffee cup and just kind of pacing around and, and being weird. And yeah, then then I wanted pie because he was talking about Marie Callenders. And I was like, that sounds delicious. I wish we could have pie. No, we don't have <laughs> pie. And we just have to keep watching this. No pie for you. No pie, more Gili. Oh, how much more? Oh, it's only almost two hours long. Uh, it's a very long movie. This movie is way too long for what it is. This movie should have been a cool 85 minutes. And it would have been a lot more talk. Yes. 61 minutes like Dumbo. That would have been the, uh, <laughs> the ideal length. So the next significant thing that happens, and I may have this out of order, but who cares? It doesn't matter. The the (laughs) plot does not move in any sort of forward momentum sort of way. So you can totally be forgiven if you are miscategorizing scenes. They're sort of having this conversation about uh, J-Lo being a lesbian. And then Ben Affleck's mom calls because she needs to have her insulin injected into her butt. So 
they've got to go to his mom's who lives somewhere in LA, even though they're New Yorkers or whatever. So we get this shot of Ben Affleck injecting insulin into his mom's butt and she's wearing like a thong. And, you know, of course that's funny because she's like a middle-aged woman who's a little overweight and it's kind of gross, I guess. And then, so we get this character of his mom played by the, an actress, Lainey Kazan. I don't know if she's related to Elia Kazan or the Kazan family. I, I don't think she is. She was like a Broadway star. She's one of those people. She's Jewish, but has played like every conceivable. He, she or she's Italian. Uh, yeah. She was uh, Greek, obviously, in my big fat Greek wedding. Oh, right, right, was. right, 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 right. She just kind of bounces around like that. I also I went down a weird rabbit hole looking her up, not to interrupt, but I thought this was fascinating because, again, because I was just like, I've seen this woman in a million things and I couldn't think of what it was. But she yes, this sounds very much like a thing that would have happened in the 70s is she got like nominated for a Tony for some big Broadway thing she was in. And because of that. She posed for Playboy. Usually you'd think that's the thing you do pre-fame, but it was the 70s. And Jack Kirby saw her spread. And uh, if you, you know, for the comic fans out there, there's a character named Big Bartha who's connected to Miracle Man. Uh, the, the comic the design of her was based off of Lainey Kazan's Playboy spread. That's incredible. <laughs> wow. I had no idea. If we don't learn anything or take anything away from this film, we got we just got something now from Josh. Yeah. That made it all worthwhile. Sorry, Big Barda, not Big Bartha. That's super interesting. But anyway, J-Lo and, uh, and J- Justin Bartha are waiting outside, and they come knocking on the door, and Geely's trying to like keep them out, but um, the mom's like, "Let you come, let your friends in." And so they all come into the house, and immediately the mom's like, "Oh, who's this new lady you're with, Larry?" And you know he's trying to sort of play it off, and then finally is revealed that you know they're not together because. Uh, j-lo's a lesbian and then the mom's like oh well i used to be quite experimental back in the day and then geely's like oh no ma no so (laughs) (laughs) that's the comedic thrust of this scene that geely's middle-aged mom used to get it on with ladies back in the day comedy and yet much like walking, I was just it's nice to be like, I'm just glad they like left the apartment yeah. and are interacting <laughs> with anyone else to, to inject some new material into the proceedings. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful <laughs> at this point in context. You know, <laughs> I'm grateful for this weird fucking scene. But I mean, that's basically all there is to it. I mean, I guess we're supposed to get some sort of insight into Gili's character, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be getting from it. It's one of many sort of confusing character moments, revealing character moments. I feel like the only thing we got from this is that's when it's revealed that this is the house he grew up in. And that was when we realized like he's, he's lived in LA his entire (laughs) life. From New York. (laughs) Yeah. It was just like, it was more just what? Like just more questions. And like this, none of this makes sense. That was like the one thing. And then, yeah, his mom keeps saying like, 
just keep an open mind. You never know. Like life isn't, it's not all black and white, you know, like she's in, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, maybe you'll stop being a lesbian and you guys can be together. You know, it's like, no, this isn't how any of this works. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, because she doesn't come back either. No, nope. <laughs> that, nope. that was it. That's it. The whole movie works in that way where it's just these three going from character to character who don't come back. The next character who comes in and doesn't come back is J-Lo's lover, Robin. We have this, I think Brian is in the kitchen, like listening to hip hop. Grabbing his balls. Yeah, in his underwear. That made me uncomfortable. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yes. I guess we should contextualize that. He's listening to a rap song and singing along, but then for just like a really long time, he's just kind of like grabbing his balls, I guess like a rapper might but i'm just like we're holding on this shot way too long way too long yeah it it was a lot of ball grabbing you know which as you do but in <laughs> you know in the context of his character that was maybe not a wise choice but so yeah he he's he really likes hip-hop music we get him rapping along to a bunch of different songs throughout the movie at one point he does uh ll cool j's i need love but he gets interrupted by a knock on the door and Geely's like oh i got neighbors or whatever he opens the door and there's this young woman there uh robin who is played by an actress named missy Kreider, who i don't know from anything she like one of those actresses who like looks like a zillion other people totally tricked me into thinking she was someone i thought she was gretchen mall for a minute yeah she kind of looks like gretchen mall sort of mushed together with uh like kirsten dunst maybe julia styles in there (laughs) a little bit yeah it's definitely got a gretchen mall thing going but she bursts in, uh, as everybody does in this apartment, and she's hysterical because J-Lo has broken up with her. And then, you know, she sees Gili there and is like, what, are you with him now? And then, you know, if you want to have a threesome, we can have a threesome. It's just this just hysterical sort of scene where she's freaking out on them. But then she like runs into the kitchen and grabs a kitchen knife and slashes her wrists and like does it in this just weird, matter of fact, undramatic way. Yeah, that makes it more disturbing. Really. Yeah, there's yeah. something it was really just disturbing and, and un- yes. unsettling about it. So they've got to rush her to the hospital. And then so long, Robin. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's so long, Robin. But then um, what we didn't mention was I think it must have been the, maybe the night before or something. Louie calls Larry and says they need to cut off uh, Brian's thumb. That happens like right before this scene. Yeah. And they're sort of deliberating over it when Robin comes in and throws everything out of whack. Yeah, Which in a better movie... I like that as kind of a dark comedy dilemma to deal with. Yeah. That they've started to kind of like soften up to Brian and now they need to mutilate him or, you know, they'll be killed or whatever. In this movie, it just it continues. It just adds to the heap of like tonal inconsistencies from one scene to the next. Well, luckily for them, they end up at the hospital and conveniently uh, they devise a plan to sneak into the morgue 
where they will sever the finger off of a dead body and use that as a substitute for Brian's finger. I at least appreciated that this scene, because I love a good um, morgue and food Hmm. scene. And so when they go into the morgue, they find some takeout uh, food sitting there, and Gigli decides to cut the finger off of the dead body with a plastic... Takeout knife! But see, I was like, when this scene started, I was like, oh my god, is this going to be the first genuinely good scene in the whole movie because I'm like I love like this idea like that seems like something that would happen in you know, in like Shaun of the Dead or just some fun like or you know throw mama from the train like that kind of like dark comedy or the Coen brothers of this guy needing to saw a finger off with a plastic fork yes except or with a knife but he has no issues we don't even see it Yeah, it's just working like it's a normal knife. And then we just cut to this close up of Brian singing. I like big butts. Right. uh, For the entire (laughs) length of the scene. While Ben Affleck is apparently having like no no real problems using this dull plastic knife to cut through a bone. What a wasted opportunity. Yeah, it could have been great. And like I, I just logistically I was like, I don't. I don't think I've ever had success really cutting anything with like a plastic knife yeah. from takeout stuff. Like you it's just hard to cut like vegetables with or anything. <laughs> yeah, it's knife. not. It's not. It's not. Not good. No. Yeah, this movie has a lot of stuff like that where you feel like there's these setups that then don't have payoffs, which is why I feel like it never fully clicked with me, you know, subconsciously at least that it was a comedy because it wasn't delivering comedic beats it would sort of present comedic ideas but then not deliver them in any way that was recognizable as a form of comedy like i don't even understand why that bit we were just talking about was in this movie like for the kind of movie it's even trying to present itself like that's a problem that would have happened to nick cage in raising arizona and it would have been hilarious in that movie if for some reason he'd had to cut off a corpse's thumb with plastic utensils, but I don't even really know what Martin Brest was going for here. I think you're on to something bringing up uh, the Coen brothers. I feel like he might have been thinking he could do that, maybe? I mean... I don't know. Again, I, I love Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run so much. He didn't write those, but I mean... Still, they're tonally like perfect for the kind of movies they are. I'd say tone is almost a bigger problem for this movie than the script itself. If it is supposed to be a rom-com, like one of the things that the Sub and I always like roll our eyes about is there's usually, or even in some comedies, there's usually like a lesson to be learned. Like it's usually like, oh, we're having a good time. And then we take this turn where the character has to learn a lesson. And it's usually kind of an eye roll, but whatever. I mean, if it's a good comedy, it can it can it can work. But what ha- what lessons were learned here? Did I miss it? <laughs> uh, don't <laughs> kidnap mentally handicapped people. <laughs> I think the lesson is lesbianism isn't totally real. Yeah, <laughs> it, you can always. There's always a chance if 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 a lesbian can find the right dude then they can get they can be pulled out of their lesbian ways. And that's its real failing as a rom-com is once they finally have sex, which I think is like the next real relevant thing that happens. 
I didn't want them to. I wasn't no. like, oh, yay, it's finally happening. I was like, no, this is weird. No. Yeah. And, you know, granted, <laughs> I didn't really enjoy any of their like interplay before then. But at least I had some respect for the idea that the concept was about this macho dickhead thinking he can badger a lesbian into having sex with them and yes. just failing and humiliating himself. But then it works. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what he does. They go to this mailboxes, et cetera, to mail the finger. And uh, JLo's making eyes at the cute girl who's working there. And then on the way back, Gili throws a fit in the car about how he, yeah, you say I'm sad. Well, I am sad because I've got this gorgeous girl blah, 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 who's so great and everything. And, you know, she doesn't want to sleep with me. It's, <laughs> it's the most incelly thing I think I've yes. ever heard <laughs> yeah. said in like yes. a Hollywood rom-com. Yes. Like I couldn't believe he was, our hero was saying this. <laughs> That's like, if she'd been straight, what's his point? Right. Then that just would have been like, if you were straight, we would have, I would have gotten to have sex with you no matter what. Right. You, like, you know, you wouldn't have had any say in it. I, like, I was even get where this is coming from of how unfair it is to him. And he's so heated about it. His like his he looks like he's going to cry. Like his eyes are watering. Again, it's too realistically believable to be in a movie <laughs> cuz I totally buy that that's what a guy like this would think yes. in yep. this scenario and behave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that's the kind of fit a dude like this would throw. I've seen them happen. Sure, but you haven't seen them happening to the hero of the movie before. Well, and you haven't seen them happen where it's the other person is somebody of the caliber of J-Lo, and then it I, works. Yeah, and then it works. I, I guess know. I guess that's the real point. If this had not worked, then that would have just been further uh, negative character coloring for Larry Gili. Uh, but it totally works. It's great. As it turned out, opening up his toxic heart right. was exactly <laughs> what what she needed. Yeah, and it completely undermines this scene where they're back at his house and she's on the bed and she's like, why don't you show me, you know, what a man can do? Because, you know, he'd been claiming that men can perform cunnilingus just as good as women. And then he has this moment of insecurity where he's like, well, you know, maybe women, you know, because they know what women want, they're better at it or whatever. And she's like, oh, come here, you. And and then they start yeah. <laughs> kissing and you're like, this is so gross, you know, and I've read some of the reviews that came out at this time and they all said like, oh, Affleck and JLo have no chemistry. And it's like, I don't think that's true. I think they obviously have some sort of chemistry because they have it in real life. I think the movie and the script is so gross, you can't feel it for them. You know, if there were other things that had happened before this that were leading you to this place, you might have felt some chemistry between them. But it's like you can't because they're like, this is fucking terrible that she is conceding to this after that fit he just threw. It's truly nauseating. Who is rooting for that? I don't know. And it's the pivotal scene of the movie. Like, this is the nexus point of the movie. Because after this, they get a phone call the next morning, and it's uh, Lenny. 
and he's summoning them to Starkman's house. We go to Starkman's house, this fancy house on the hill and it's hills or whatever. And it's revealed to be Al Pacino as Starkman in his one scene in the movie. I can only imagine his buddy Martin Brest called him in to do this after winning him the Oscar for yeah. Scent of a Woman. <laughs> so we're set up to have this kind of like boogie nights type scene, you know, reminiscent of the scene where Alfred Molina is talking to the guys and there's the guy setting off fireworks in the background, but we get none of that good stuff. We don't get nope. Sister Christian or anything. We just get <laughs> Al Pacino's, you know, sweet looking pad and, you know, he's talking about, like, why did you go and kidnap this kid and everything? And it's like, I, you know, I don't know. Why did they? And you really screwed this up. And so, you know, he goes over to Lewis and he pulls the this gun out of Lewis's jacket. And he's just sort of holding it like, why did you bring a gun or whatever? You know right then what's going to happen. You're like, okay, yeah. he's going to shoot Lewis. Like, but they're trying to set it up like he's just taking his gun and just playing around with it or whatever. But then he shoots Lewis, getting him out of the movie, thankfully. And, <laughs> and you think this is going to build into some sort of scene, okay? And look, I don't need it to to build up into some big action shootout, but you have to build up your scene into something. And all that happens is he, sh you know, he shoots Lewis and then he's like, now I'm going to kill you guys or whatever. And JLo's like, you really think that's a good idea? And she just talks him out of it somehow. Very uh, unconvincingly. The movie did yeah. not do a great job. The only thing I like in this scene is that Pacino is at least pointing out that their plan makes no sense. Because that's why he kills yes. Louis is that Louis clearly came up with this plan of kidnapping the a federal prosecutor's brother without discussing it with Starkman. And Starkman points out, we're not living in like, you know, little Italy a hundred years ago. How was this going to get this guy to drop the case? He just went and told all his other fed buddies and now they're after me even harder. I would have won this case. Uh, but that realistic detail aside, yeah, the scene does not earn her her her, her slick talking at the end because it's really not even that slick. No, she's nope. just kind of like, well, if you kill us, then you're you're really fucked. But we can undo this, and then you'll get away with it. And I'm like, I don't know. I feel like he already made a good point that they kidnapped this guy's brother, and now he's doubly fucked. Like now it's personal. Right. Before this guy was just after him because he was a criminal. I was finding odd. Like, why'd they name this character Starkman and then cast Al Pacino? And they're all supposed to be Italian. Right. Re just name him something Italian. I don't, like, again, nitpicking, but I was just like, that's an odd choice. Yeah, that scene sucked. It was just like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, 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 I appreciate that, yes, that Al Pacino's like, this was a dumb plan and everyone should die because of it. But I, yeah, I'm not, it's not interesting. It doesn't give us anything. It's just such a boring delivery, just nothing. I mean, I'm happy to see Pacino, but it's like, it's just not, there's, there's nothing there. We live like JLo lamely talks them out of it. And they're just like, we're just going to leave. They, they just decide they're going to leave town They're That's the plan is like, <laughs> they're just going to leave town. Right. Like, yep. I mean, Okay. Okay. All They're right. gonna drop Brian back off at the hospital or whatever he is staying. Right. And that's what they're going to do when they're driving down the PCH, and 
they see what appears to be the Baywatch. The Baywatch. There's something going on on the beach where we see, you know, all these beachgoers, scantily clad men and women running around. There's a film shoot of some sort. It looks like it might be a Baywatch shoot. Turns out it's actually just some sort of video or something that's never really made clear. But Brian wants to pull over to the Baywatch and Gigli's like, no, no, we can't. But J-Lo's like, you promised him you'd go. So they pull over and they've sort of been threading this lame element of Gigli and Brian bonding because Gigli's like telling him how to talk to girls. It's the most cliche rote type of thing and it's barely in the movie so the fact that they're trying to pay it off with this scene is so lame but they pull in to this you know video shoot and they're just standing there watching them and like brian's wearing like this leather jacket and like a knit hat and everything because they're trying to disguise him so he won't be seen i don't know why that makes him less conspicuous (laughs) but whatever And so, yeah, we get this whole scene where they're watching the video and Brian wants to go join in and they're like, no, no, you can't. And then finally, Gigli, I guess, has some weird sort of epiphany or change of heart. He gives uh, J-Lo the keys to his car and tells her to leave. So she drives off. Well, but first he asks Brian what his brother's name is, the attorney, because he, he he uses a payphone and calls and, you know, alludes to that he's calling the attorney and saying your brother is at, you know, this the, on the Palisades or wherever they are, yeah. you know, at, the, at Sunset Park, whatever that is. It also really bothered me, like it made me kind of mad that the entire time poor Brian has just wanted to go to the Baywatch. And fucking Geely is such an asshole that like he like grabbed this flashlight right from the the glove box and pretend it was a walkie-talkie and say oh the Baywatch is closed yeah and we can't go there today <laughs> and that it just like it it made me so mad because I was like you're such a dick like I hate that like Argh! it just <laughs> like it made me so mad so I was like for me for him to finally get to go here. And I'm like, just let him go down and like hang out with these people. Like let Brian have something. Like I was so like that that actually felt something in this film was like Brian getting to go down there and as cheesy as it is and like, you know, whatever. It was like probably one of the better like scenes in the film. Yeah, I didn't mind that Brian gets to go down and participate and dance with this cute Australian girl. Oh, we forgot to mention Brian likes to call this weather Brisbane number and listen to the weather in Australia because he likes the sound of the of operators and voice. it's super expensive so yeah. Gigli keeps getting mad at him for making these calls right how could we have forgotten that unforgettable <laughs> detail but so brian goes down to this dance party video shoot and you know he's sort of awkwardly trying to find somebody to pair up with and he pairs up with this blonde girl and she starts talking and oh my goodness she is australian and sounds like the girl on the phone, and then they start dancing together. All of this I don't have a problem with. What I have a problem with is the way they do it because they're just Uh. dragging it out and they keep going back to insert shots of Ben Affleck's stupid fucking face where he's like, (laughs) yeah, you're like, go get him, go get him or whatever. (laughs) And they just keep doing this over and over to the point where you're just 
irritated and you're just like, just let just end the fucking movie, please. And it this whole last section of the movie feels so weirdly drawn out. Oh and my you'd God. think that at this point, if you're editing this piece of shit, you'd be like, we need to come on, man, let's <laughs> yeah. wrap it up. Let's at least get it under two hours. Right. <laughs> we can lose like four minutes from this. Now is maybe a good time to talk about the things that were in the original. And when I say original version, I mean, they shot all of it and edited it together and screened it for audiences and audiences hated it, rightfully so. So they changed it. That movie maybe would be more interesting in certain places than this, but it's like, I think the movie was ultimately unfixable. But so the first thing is the big reveal with JLo's character and why Ricky isn't her real name is her girlfriend, the one who comes in and slits her wrist, is apparently the one who was actually like a gangster that Louis called to go keep an eye on Gili, but JLo like intercepted that call and decided to go do it herself. Okay. All right. I don't really know what that was supposed to add to anything other than I guess she's not a criminal. It's also very confusing. The mechanisms going on there. Yeah. <laughs> but so then at the end, when they decide that they're just going to part ways, she just leaves and never comes back to the movie. She's like so long forever, whatever. Bye. And then he is going to go turn Brian over to Christopher Walken and they get in a big gun battle and shoot each other. And Christopher Walken dies and Ben Affleck's shot in the gut. So he's like slowly dying. And that's when they see the Baywatch and wow. so in all the shots where they're cutting back to Ben Affleck, that was a reshoot in the actual movie. Those were shots of him slowly dying <laughs> and he dies at the end of the movie. I would have preferred that 100% to watch him die slowly of a gut shot. While Brian was dancing uh, on the beach. Oh yeah. Again, I don't really, I don't know what that movie was supposed to be. I don't, this doesn't feel like some sort of Blade Runner, like how dare you kind of re-edit or anything. I don't know. Uh, it just speaks to how tonally off this movie was in its conception. There just never was a solid concept or tone how would you go through this whole movie and then end it that way? Like with everything that's come before with all the sort of odd comedy. I mean, I guess if you think you're Tarantino, but. And I'm just mad that I don't want to say they wasted Pacino because Pacino loves wasting himself on a lot of odd performance choices and movie selections. But just thinking of like all the great, because this, this definitely slots into the structure of building up to we finally get a scene with this one character, you know, like William Hurd at the end of History of Violence or speaking of Tarantino, when we finally get to see David Carradine yeah. uh, in Kill Bill 2 or I guess it's not the end of the movie, but I was thinking when you finally get to see Ned Beatty and Network or fucking even Sterling Hayden at the end of nine to five, even though that's the totally different vibe, but like <laughs> where like, it really leaves this like memory on you of this character finally showing up. And I feel like by the time Gili's over, you almost forgot you saw Pacino, which when yeah. he shows up, you're like, Oh shit, P 
Pacino time. Right. <laughs> but it's so forgettable. I, I go further, Josh. Like, I was mad last night when I was watching this. I'm mad that this movie even got made. I'm like, there's so many movies, it's so hard to get a movie made. And then this this happened. And, like, at the expense that it happened. And, like, I, I feel bad for everybody involved, really. Like, the whole cast. Like, you know, they I, I, like we said earlier, it's like, I, I like everyone that's in the cast, like as actors and other things that they've done. Like I'm not going in with any sort of like, oh, I don't really like so-and-so with the exception of uh, Louie. I'm not really a fan of that guy. <laughs> I mean, he's, I, I can't, I can't say, I mean, I was like, oh, I'm ready for, I wasn't, I mean, I was happy when he got killed in this film, but just so much goes into trying to make this happen. And then this shit happened. I really don't understand how it costs so much. And just out of curiosity, I looked, and so the two highest grossing movies of 2003 were Lord of the Rings, The Turn of the King, and Finding Nemo, both of which only cost $20 million more, less than $20 million more Wow! than Gigli. Like, what did they spend? I mean, I know they paid J-Lo a lot. I guess they, they must both have... of them. They paid them like 12.5 each, I think, her and Ben. And I guess Walken and Pacino. But even then, though, I'm still like, they can't have paid them that much for like one day of work. This has just got to be one of those movies where everyone was taking an astronomical paycheck and everything was, you know, all the catering was the most expensive they could get. Too many shooting days. Right. Maybe. Like just completely irresponsible spending they certainly weren't spending it on the sets that's one thing they weren't that's spending crazy. it on the movie look this feels like it's a low budget indie like yeah. yes. the, 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 otherwise why would you write a movie that takes place indoors in like one apartment so much you know it feels like we're watching bound or something minus all the imagination that went into that movie minus just being a good movie this is like watching <laughs> this is like watching the room without it being the room right this makes you wish for the room oh yeah the, yeah. the room's at least unintentionally hilarious well yeah unlike we said began the show unlike showgirls or something this movie fails to be bad enough to be entertaining. Yes. It's just bad enough to be dull. It doesn't transcend that in any kind of ludicrous way. I usually ask the question, you know, why did this fail? <laughs> but in this case, I have to ask the question, who thought this would succeed? I don't know. Because it wasn't even a Benefer movie. It was supposed to be Halle Berry. And yeah, she had I to read drop that. out for X-Men 2. Lucky her. Very lucky her. Because uh, yeah. that's the only thing I could think of was just that somebody was like, oh, what about a Benefer movie? And it just like spiraled out of control from then. But like that was more of like what I'm sure they thought initially was going to be a happy accident. Yeah. Of like, oh, they're dating and like they're just becoming huge as a couple. Everyone's going to want to see this. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm always fascinated, like town and country that. Yeah. Warren Beatty movie. That was another mm -hmm. one that just cost an astronomical amount of money. And that one, I think, was a little bit of development hell ballooning where it was just like it took so long to get made in part. It kept getting more and more expensive. But I, nothing online indicates that happened with this one other than Halle Berry having to drop out. It seems like it kind of moved forward at a normal speed. It doesn't seem like it's a... a 
I mean, I don't know. I, I have I didn't see anything in the trivia or whatever that indicated it was a troubled production, but it's like, how could it be? It's like it's in someone's apartment in Santa Monica and like everyone lives in LA. And like, I mean, it just feels like something that like people who were starting out trying to to get into the business, like we're like making a movie with their friends. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it just feels so amateur as far as what it's about and what it's doing, but then it yet it has this kind of big deal cast and this giant budget. And I just, I, I don't know. And Martin Brest was already coming off of a kind of unnecessarily expensive box office disappointment, which was Meet Joe Black, which was at least a movie that seemed like it could cost more since it has the famous getting hit by multiple cars special effects scene. It has production value yeah. to it. I, yeah. No, I saw Meet Joe Black in the theater and I have much more love for Meet Joe oh, Black yeah. than for this film. You know, I've, I've seen Meet Joe Black a couple times. It's just, it's just weird that after that, he convinced people to give him like an equal amount of money for a movie that really doesn't even need anywhere near. Like this movie should have cost like $15 million. Yeah. Tops. Even that would be extravagant, <laughs> you know, for what they did. If they, you know, just didn't have Al Pacino and Christopher Walken and J-Lo and, and Ben Affleck, you could easily make this for $15 million or less. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't ever go anywhere cool. We don't ever see anything cool. I don't know. I guess the beach party is something. There's a lot of extras in that scene. But yeah, it just makes no sense. I think, you know, Martin Brest just was accustomed to making movies for a lot of money. And it didn't matter like that his idea was this small idea. It was still going to cost a ton of money for him to make it because he's a big shot director. And, you know, there is at least one bit of justice. And that is like Martin Brest has not directed a movie since this. This effectively killed his career. Yeah. Too bad, I guess, in case he had another good movie in him. But I would say that it, just by the rules of Hollywood, uh, if anything is going to earn you director jail, it would be a production like this. That just seems like all the all the wrong decisions were made. And it was such a notorious flop. I mean, mm -hmm. this was just the talk of the town for weeks. What a like disaster it was both critically and you know, financially, an unbelievable disaster. There's some fun little bits of trivia on IMDb about... Do tell. Yeah, just, just regarding like different interactions with Ben Affleck's friends regarding this film. It says, according to longtime best friend Matt Damon, Ben Affleck twitches whenever this film is mentioned. <laughs> And I like that one, but this one I like even better that um, Kevin Smith likes to tell stories about how whenever he and Ben Affleck are playfully ribbing one another, all Smith has to say to end the conversation is Geely. <laughs> well, he shouldn't get too, uh, too full of himself because not soon after they made Jersey Girl together. Yeah. That was a yeah. huge <laughs> flop too. Yeah. He's at least bounced back. Kevin Smith is just kind of, although I hear his new He-Man show might be good, but yeah, looks, that, that looks aside, uh, I mean, that's the only reason I feel bad for Martin Press is that it's like J-Lo and Affleck both managed to rebound from this. Big time. Uh, yeah. It's too bad that this is kind of his tombstone movie. Well, maybe he'll get to make another movie. He's still alive, so. 
He's still alive and it doesn't have to be. It's just, you know, if you're, when you've done something like this, he's going to have to come back on a much smaller scale yes. and really like prove himself, you know? And it's like, if he can do that, great. I mean, you know, everyone loves a good comeback. It probably happened at the point in his career where he was considering retiring and he'd made his money and then this happened. He was probably like, oh, fuck it. Like, <laughs> yeah. why bother? Yeah. They let me spend $75 million and didn't have me killed. <laughs> so I'm going to call that a win. I can't find anything good about this. Yeah, not really. A movie that truly earning of like one of the worst movies of all time. Yes. This movie for me may be the worst movie of all time. I think it Just because... Be. Is it the worst made movie of all time? No, but I guarantee you, you can show me almost any movie made by the most rank amateur and I'm going to find more to enjoy than this. I do feel like for every dollar you spend proportionally, that counts to the worst ever vibe, right? Because it's yes, like, if, for sure. If a movie that costs $20,000, if it's not that good, you're going to be like, well, I mean, who's really expecting it to be, but for $70 million starring all great people we all love made by the guy who did Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run doing another wacky kind of like cops and robbers sort of movie. Uh, this movie had no business being this bad. I looked up to you like this, like is one of the all time Razzie awards champs where it just like won everything how could it not yeah i mean i don't really like the razzies i think they're stupid but like yeah. this is the kind of movie they live for of just like a big hollywood turd that's exactly what it is josh it's a big <laughs> hollywood turd <laughs> all right guys well i'm gonna go kidnap a prosecutor's mentally challenged brother and cut a thumb off a dead body with a plastic knife and mail it to Martin Brest because he needs to answer for his crimes. <laughs> that about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows? One day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.